0: Amen. If you'd like to grab your seats, with the exception of Aaron, who is going to stay standing. (laughs) Turn around so they can all see you. Now, I was realizing this morning that you are getting old when the child who was the star at your first ever Southside nativity service is in S1, and also when one of who are affectionately known as the triplets but of course they have names erin kira and joe when one of them is off to university this week so like that is just so scary so what i'm just going to do quickly is i'm going to pray for erin before the youth go out but if you'd just like to stretch your arms out towards her uh, we want to pray that as she goes she knows god with her uh, continues to shine as a light for god and that he plugs her into a worshiping community up in glasgow father we thank you um that time doesn't stand still, that you do move us on, that you're constantly moving us on with you um, and and just in life. And Father, we want to pray for Erin, Lord, that as she goes up to Glasgow, um, that, that you would help her to plug in with a great group of Christian and non-Christian friends, that you would help and use and bless her in the communities that she is going to become a part of. Lord, we pray for her family and I, I guess especially for, for mum and dad as they uh, realize that one of Three years away, and as they pray for two more to be gone pretty soon. Um, but Father, we pray for this whole family. We thank you for how they serve in our midst, that they are an example of your transformative power. And Lord, we pray that you would continue to use them mightily and use Aaron mightily on this next step of the journey. In Jesus' name, amen. So our youth can uh, make their way out now. I don't, Aaron, I don't know if you count as youth anymore. You have to stay in. No? She's just blanking me. She's definitely still youth if she's just blanking me. Uh, if you'd like to turn to Mark chapter 3, and uh, I'm, gonna re, I'm just going to launch into it. You can catch up as we go. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell who he was. I just want to chuck in really quickly. The reason for that, okay, and kind of trust me on it. Go and look it up if you want. And, uh, and if you disagree, then come and speak to me. But I just want to very quickly say the reason why Jesus keeps silent the evil spirits is simply this. Jesus doesn't need Satan to testify about Jesus. Jesus testifies about Jesus, Okay, Jesus acts testify about Jesus. He doesn't need demons to do it for him. So that is why, if you're wondering, Jesus keeps telling the uh, the evil spirits not to say anything. Um, Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve designating them apostles, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the 12 he appointed. And, and again, a quick throw in here, okay, because I know that I'm short on time, so I want to try and chuck a whole load of stuff in. If you ever think that you are not good enough for Jesus, this list of people tells you you are because, or to be a follower, to be a disciple, to be one who proclaims Jesus, notice how this list finishes and ends. These are the twelve he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the nickname Peter. James, son of Zebedee, and his brothers John, to whom he gave the nicknames. I know I've chucked in the nickname bit, but it it's a fair translation, Boanerges, which means sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. That list starts with two betrayers. It starts and ends, sorry, with two betrayers. Simon, Peter, who would betray Jesus with his words, Judas, who would betray him with a kiss. Jesus can use anybody. Then Jesus entered a house and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him for they said, he is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. I tell you the truth, all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. Third and final throw-in. If you ever worry that you are blaspheming against the Holy Spirit, then you're not. Okay? Because people are so, who even worry about it aren't going to be doing it. You are so hard of heart when you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit that you wouldn't even worry. Uh, when we were in college, we, it was almost like when we were studying this passage, we were like, oh, I wonder if that's me. And it's kind of like, could I go and blaspheme the Holy Spirit? You can't do it if you're worried about doing it, okay? Just to encourage you. He said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus, we thank you for your life. We thank you for your example. We thank you for your teaching. We thank you that you did not and do not need demons to testify to you because your works testify, your words testify, your people testify. Your spirit testifies. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would take my words now and that you would use them for your praise and glory, for the increase of your kingdom, for the transformation of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. So I said that there was a quote that I was going to read every, time, every week of this series. We are running slightly tighter on time this morning because of that incredible testimony that we heard, but it is so important that we hear these stories of what Jesus is doing in our midst, isn't it? It's amazing. Jesus is showing up in our midst and doing incredible things. And so I'm not going to start off with that, that quote, but what I do just want to remind us and, and tell you if you're visiting, the whole point of this series, read Jesus. Jesus is the name for this series as we journey through Mark's gospel. And the whole point of it is twofold. The first thing is that it is regarding Jesus. In other words, it is about Jesus. It is for us to know more about Jesus through it. But it is also read Jesus because it is about us saying we need to read Jesus our lives. Our lives do not look Jesus enough. We have put Jesus in a box. We have taken Jesus. We have made uh, the faith which bears his name Christianity. And we have made it into some that suits our lives, that suits our way of doing, that suits our ways of being. And yet Jesus didn't come to suit our lives. He came so that we might get on program with him. I love that phrase. Many of you will have heard it. Jesus came to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. That is what this is about. We are trying to allow Jesus to shake us up and say how we are going to land and who we are going to become and what we are going to look like is what he purposes for us and not how we have imagined church should be. And uh, this is what it says in Isaiah 55, verse 8 and following. For my thoughts, this is God speaking through Isaiah, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And that's a joke again, by the way. I was chatting to my good friend this week and I was saying, you, you know, like a few weeks ago when I said, you know, how Jesus wants us to laugh at some of what he says. Like when he says, so the Pharisees, have you not read? Can't you remember? Well, this is like a joke in Isaiah. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so far are my ways from yours, and whatever it exactly says that I just read there. Um, this is a joke because the heavens are infinitely higher than the earth. Okay? It isn't like saying, you know, as far as I live from where my mum and dad live, or as far as you live from where your kids live, or whatever it might happen to be. It is saying, infinitely higher than you, infinitely Bigger than you can ever grasp are God's ways compared to what our ways are. Or, I might say it in another way, infinitely greater, infinitely bigger, infinitely separated is my picture of God compared to who God really is. And the whole point of this series is that we take seriously what Isaiah is saying and what many, many writers are saying, which is this. We have put God in a box, and our boxes are no longer allowing God to be infinitely, in other words, immeasurably, beyond anything we can imagine, but we're just bringing him down to our level and saying, this is how we're going to do things, God. Can you get with my program? And what I want to do this morning, and it's going to be a real test for me, um, because I have 18 or 19 minutes to go, and uh, we are going to speed our way through all of Mark chapter 3. No, not all of Mark chapter 3. We're going to speed our way through some of the things in Mark chapter 3. Now, at the very outset, I want to say to you, this is not a passage about Sabbath, This is not a passage about Sabbath. You might have been coming here to hear, what can I and can't I do on the Sabbath? When is the Sabbath? What does Sabbath look like? This isn't a passage about Sabbath. I'll explain that in a minute. Because actually, this is a passage about this. This is a passage about how Jesus obliterates man-made rules. At the very start of this Passage. And going back into chapter 2 where we uh, read about the disciples picking, uh, picking the corn on the Sabbath, this isn't a passage about what we can, can't do on Sabbath. It isn't a passage about when the Sabbath is. It's a passage that says, Jesus obliterates man-made rules. Because what you've got to remember, right, is that the Sabbath was a day that was intended to do two or or three things primarily. First of all, it was a remembrance of how God rested at, at the end of creation. He did it all in six days. He rested on the seventh. It was also, and we read this later on in the Old Testament, it was also a remembrance of God leading his people out of slavery. In other words, so you were caught up, burdened, prisoners, slaves in Egypt and God brought you into freedom and the Sabbath was also a remembrance of that. And so just a quick throw-in, although I say this isn't a passage about Sabbath, just a quick throw-in would be this. Are we living in slavery to a 24-7 culture or are we allowing ourselves to step into the freedom of having some rest in our lives? You know, one of those things that defines us all too often is this. How are you? Good. Good. Harry says he's good, that's fantastic. Most people don't say, most people say, oh, I'm so busy, so busy. We're defined by busyness and the Sabbath speaks prophetically into that and prophetically into a culture that is non-stop. But it isn't really a passage about Sabbath. As I said, it's a passage about how Jesus obliterates man-made rules. You see, at the time of Jesus, there were 39 rules To help you figure out what work was on the sabbath 39 different rules god's command was to keep the sabbath holy and in an attempt to keep the sabbath holy religious rules had been put in place and listen to this religious rules offered to god which were hindering the liberation of the kingdom of god the kingdom of god is about setting people free isn't it Thirty-nine rules about what you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath doesn't sound like setting you free. It sounds like, oh sugar, did I miss that one? Sugar, did I miss that one? To the extent you know that that, that people were literally like having to leave leave things and not switch. Like you know, the Pharisees would have preferred you to go hungry on the Sabbath than to light a fire on the Sabbath. Okay, they would have preferred that a homeless person didn't get fed on the Sabbath. That, that's just how it was because they had these 39 rules all about it. But really, what this passage is about is about how religious rules were hindering people from the freedom that the kingdom of God is meant to bring. And I was thinking about it this week, and I promise there is a lot more backstory to this. You can come and have a coffee with me and talk about it. I'm just going to shoot straight to some of the application on this. But what this passage uh, is essentially challenging us on is where are we putting in those 39 rules? Or it might not be 39, but where are we putting in those things? So, you know, have you ever been stuck behind a slow driver? Yes. Yes. I'm sure the answer is yes. I'm just going to answer for you. And, and what happens with slow drivers, right, is they are so worried about speeding that in a 30 zone they go at 28. Speak, Lord. <laughs> that in a 30 zone... Sorry, I hope that wasn't blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. <laughs> in a 30 zone, they go at 28 just to make sure they don't go over 30. And when you approach a traffic light, even if it's on green, they start to slow down in case it goes to amber. Okay, That is essentially the equivalent of what the Pharisees were doing here. In order to not do anything that was, uh, that was wrong against the Sabbath or that broke the command of the Sabbath, they were putting all of these rules in place. And, and, and church, we do this. Christians do this all the time. We put things in place that, that, to make sure that we don't sin and then to make sure that we make sure that we don't sin and then to make sure that we make sure that we make sure that we make sure that we or others don't sin. And so, for example, there are Christians who say, well, you shouldn't drink. You shouldn't drink if you're a Christian. And the reason that they say that is because in the Bible, the Bible really clearly teaches against getting drunk and so they say well actually to avoid getting drunk you shouldn't drink at all and for some people that is absolutely the right thing to do do not hear me saying that it isn't but it isn't actually what the god-given freedom-giving law says the, the, the freedom giving law which means that you never have to wake up with a hangover and never have to wake up worried about what you might have done the night before says don't get drunk but we've changed it into don't even or sometimes we've changed it into uh, don't drink church we do this about church we say well uh, church is at 11 o'clock or 11.15 on a Sunday morning and you have to come to it and you have to sit in, in rows like this and you have to have some singing and, you ha- and, and, and actually that isn't true The Bible says that go on meeting, don't give up meeting together. Keep being a people that gathers together. It doesn't actually put a whole lot of stuff in place about what that should look like, when that should be, and those sorts of things. Do you hear what I'm saying? The the Pharisees had put a whole load of rules in place in order to observe what was a good rule, a good law for them. Sabbath was a good principle, and yet it got absolutely blinded by all the extra rules that got put in place, just to make sure that the original God-given life-bringing commandment didn't get broken. It went from being something that liberated people and was a sign of God's greatness and Israel's uniqueness to being something that crushed people. I came across this quote during the week. We all need opportunity regularly to review the guiding principles, even religious rules by which we live our lives. And then listen to this and ask this of yourselves in these areas or areas where you think, you, you think you're think you doing what God has commanded, but actually maybe you've added a whole load of other stuff to the commandment. Do they truly reveal the nature of God? Do they truly reveal the nature of God? Are they still life-giving stimuli to new departures and discoveries in spirituality? Or are they steadily becoming a restrictive code? The 39 rules were no longer life-giving. They no longer allowed or helped people to grow in their relationship with God. And as such, they had missed the point. Jesus came to obliterate man-made rules. Jesus also, uh, the second thing that I want to just focus on really quickly is this, the encounter with Jesus always, always leads to a change. I want to be fair to the Pharisees, you see. The Pharisees were good people. The Pharisees were God-loving people. They weren't the trained, uh, they, they were lay people. They were people who were desperate to follow Jesus. We, sit, we read in our New Testaments that there were Pharisees who followed Jesus. We read about Nicodemus coming to see Jesus in the middle of the night so that nobody knew who did it. We read that Paul, who is the ultimate Pharisee of Pharisees, I should just say, if you're listening to this on podcast, Um, there's an air show on in air this weekend which we're all excited to get out to in a few minutes but that's what the noise is Um, Pharisees followed Jesus Pharisees were people who were seeking to sincerely follow God And yet not all of them were. And Jesus comes along. And and so the reason they put these laws in place wasn't because they wanted to be restrictive. The reason they put these laws in place was because they loved God so much and wanted people to follow him faithfully. So that was the reason behind the laws. And then Jesus comes along and he throws it all up in the air and everything changes. And, And suddenly they realize or they are challenged with the fact and maybe they don't realize that the rules they've put in place are hindering that liberation as I've just said and so we read at the, in verse 6 then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus if you ever well you will have heard ever heard that phrase odd bedfellows this, these are the oddest of bedfellows, okay? The Pharisees, who were Jews, who loved God, who were trying to uphold Jewish faith, getting into bed, so to speak, with the Herodians, who were the Roman vassals, if you like. These were the people who were working on behalf of Rome to keep Roman rule in this area. The Pharisees hated the Herodians. The Herodians wouldn't have looked, looked too fondly on the Pharisees. And yet they ha- yet, because of an encounter with Jesus... And a hatred that that brings up they jump into bed together to try and kill Jesus. And the point here, I want to look at it positively as well as negatively, is this. An encounter with Jesus leads to change. The Pharisees would never have teamed up with the Herodians, but they had an encounter with Jesus. For them, it was a negative one, and it led to this most sinister of changes in their lives. But nevertheless, it was a change. We read about the fishermen, and it's the opposite. They had an encounter with Jesus, and they followed him. We read about the, the demon-possessed have an encounter with jesus they're set free we're going to see it in a few chapters time and they go into all of the decapolis and they're sent back home to tell people about what jesus has done encounter with jesus always brings about change it cannot it does not by definition leave you standing still you will go one way or the other way and the 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 problem if you like in all of our faiths at times is that we are not allowing encounter with jesus to change us And I want to ask a question, and and I'm not going to ask for a show of hands because I was worried that people might put their hands up for the wrong answer, and then you might feel embarrassed because you would think I was right. Um, But my question is this, does your faith look the same as it did a year ago? Does how you walk with Jesus look the same as it did a year ago? And if the answer to that question is yes, can I lovingly suggest that you are missing something? If your faith looks the same as it it did a year ago, you are missing something. If your doctrine looks the same as it did a year ago, you are missing something. If the way you live out, practice your faith looks exactly the same as it did a year ago or five years ago or 10 years ago, you are missing something. Because remember, he is higher than the heavens are above the earth compared to us. And so if we are daily walking with Jesus, if we are daily saying, Holy Spirit, reveal more of who you are. Allow my life to be based on what your character is like. Then you will not be the same. Amen? Too many of us are exactly the same. We have the same quiet time. If you have one, you do the same stuff. You listen to the same music. You sit in the same ways at church. You think the same things about church. Uh, you know, we all do this. I'm not, uh, you know, I'm criticizing myself here. But a dynamic relationship with Jesus leads to change. Not just one-off change at the point of salvation, but ongoing transformation as we grow daily with him. If you, are, if you are growing in your relationship with the Lord, then your faith will not look the same as it did a year ago. Because even if you haven't found anything you were doing wrong, okay? And I would challenge you on that one, by the way. <laughs> but even if you haven't, you'll certainly have come into something new as you continue to, to discover who Jesus is. We're going all right here. got six minutes, maybe seven if I push it, eight if we don't have a song. Okay, right? Derek's clapping. Third point, we're not going to do the fourth. We're going to save it for another time because it's too, it's too big to do in one. But the third point is this, from Mark chapter three. Jesus is a revolutionary. If I went up Arthur's seat, okay, if I'd like been traveling around a little bit, doing a little bit of speaking, Putting out some new philosophy or something like that, if I went up Arthur's seat in Edinburgh and called 129 people to me, and I call these 129 people to me, and I commissioned them to go out with them with, with my philosophy, my theology, my ecclesiology, whatever it might happen to be, um, send them out, I tell them you've got to preach about it, you've got to live it out, you've got to do some actions. Probably nobody would take any notice. They might, uh, you know, some people might think something of the fact that I've commissioned these people to go out, but probably nobody would take any, any uh, notice of the fact that I've called 129 people. Anybody know why 129 is significant? there's 129 MSPs in Scotland and I'm taking them up a hill in Edinburgh and I'm saying actually outside of outside of this place where your political centre is at Holyrood okay? outside of this place it would be the same if I went up Primrose Hill in London and and got 650 people, 650 MPs in the UK and, and I take them up the hill and I say now go off and do something very different then nobody would take any notice they'd think I was a crackpot and the number was completely random in israel at this time jesus choice of going up a mountain and calling 12 to him was one of the most revolutionary things that he could do when you went up mountains in israel you went up mountains to encounter god we all know that or many of us will have heard that what we might not realize also though is that mountains were the place that people went up to plot revolution because remember they were guarded by the Romans and that sort of thing. I don't know the exact reason, but I'm guessing that it was kind of hard for one of those Romans with a massive shield to follow little bands of outlaws, so to speak, over mountain hills and passes and that sort of thing. So these mountains around the Sea of Galilee, this was where revolutionaries came from. When people were plotting to overthrow Herod or when people were plotting to overthrow the Romans, the, 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 uh, the plans would be hatched up a mountain. Mountains speak of evolution. And so Jesus goes up the mountain and he calls 12 people to him. Are you seeing the significance now? 12 people. 129 MSPs, 12 tribes in Israel. And what Jesus is doing is he's going up a revolutionary mountain. He's calling a revolutionary band of followers to him. And he's saying, I am doing something new, which is bringing Israel in a new and powerful way. This was the fulfillment of what some of the prophets spoke of, of the, of the, uh, of the, of the renewal of Israel, if you like. And Jesus is making this very revolutionary action in the mountains. I am plotting and in the mountains, I am reestablishing the 12 tribes of Israel that everybody thought had been lost. I looked up the definition of revolution. And it is this, a forcible overthrow of a government or social order in favor of a new system. Now, we know that there were those within Israel who wanted a forcible messiah who wanted the Messiah riding on the charger. Remember, not riding on a donkey, but riding on a charger, leading an army, overthrowing Rome, re-establishing the nation, the political um, nation of Israel. And we know that Jesus wasn't that. And yet he was... I believe seeking to bring in a new social order to bring in a new system or a renewed system a true living out of what the law meant the life-giving law and everything that it would entail to follow God uh, truly Jesus was he was so revolutionary think about it he touched a leper Jesus, he already in mark, we've seen that Jesus touched a leper. He healed a woman with fever. The, the, if you weren't here, fever was a sign of God forsakenness. It was a sign of sin in your life. And Jesus healed Peter's mother when she was in that position. He's turned religious legalism on its head. He's preached with power. He sends out a people who are going to see thousands of people come into the church in one day. He sends out a people who are willing to be stoned to death. He sends out a people who are going to see Pharisee of Pharisees become church planter extra extraordinary church planter extraordinaire he inspired a movement of people where the moravians would pray hundreds and hundreds of years later for over 100 years non-stop he inspired a group of people i was seeing some pictures of it during the week in zurich where the first anabaptists were literally drowned in the river because they refused to just say yet yeah, my infant baptism was it he, he inspired people who move into housing estates. He inspires people who uh, he, he inspired the emancipation of women. You need to you need to do some reading on this sort of thing. The emancipation of women, the movement that began in the eighteen eighties, eighteen seventies, even was inspired and led by women who loved Jesus and saw the revolutionary power of Jesus. He it, it was faith in Jesus, revolutionary faith in Jesus, that saw the end of the slave trade. Christians relocating relocate themselves or staying in war zones. Jesus is revolutionary, amen? And true following of Jesus is revolutionary. And I want to ask this question that I read uh, in prep for the first week. Have we domesticated the radical revolutionary in order to sustain our religion and religiosity? Listen, Jesus was living prophetically when he called the twelve. If his death sentence hadn't already been stamped which we read in verse 6 that it pretty much had been this was going to be it because this was him putting himself in place of the tradition of his people. But he was a revolutionary and true following of him ever since has been revolutionary. I have so much more that I want to say on this. There just isn't time. But here's the question I've written down. What does it look like for us to be revolutionary followers? Because according to the definition above, remember, revolution, the overthrow of a social order in favor of a new, and I would add to that, better system. What does it look like for us to be revolutionary followers? Well, according to the definition above, I think it would be living out a new social order where we stand up as a prophetic challenge in a broken world. That's what Jesus is calling us to. Otherwise it's something sub-Jesus. It's something less than fully following. And that, as they say at the end of the kids' stories, is that. But wow. Let's stand, let's pray. Uh, At the end, that will be the end of our time together. And if you have children and King's kids, if you could go out and get them. But please do not just allow, you know, I don't say this about myself at all. But go away and listen to that on podcast again. Spend some time reflecting on it. This stuff is so incredibly deep. Not because of who delivers it. Not because of where we are now. But because it's all about Jesus. (laughs) Let's pray. Father, we have been so inspired and challenged this morning as we gather together. We are so grateful to you for your life-giving spirit, but we are also so challenged because you are the revolutionary God who turns everything upside down. Would you show us where we have put these man-made rules in place? Would you show us where we have um, so often out of good intentions, God tried to uh, or made it harder for people to follow you? Lord, we repent if we are not being changed daily, weekly, monthly, annually. Would you help us to be a people who are open to your change and transformation? And Lord, would you show us what it looks like to truly be revolutionary followers of a revolutionary God in our day and age? Send us out from this place, we pray. Use us as soul and light in Jesus' name. Amen.